Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my former missionary companion and friend always, Darren Perry. Welcome to the podcast, Darren. Thank you. But it's good to see you again. Darren doesn't have any gray hair and he's not bald. And we served in England. We were together in 1980. That is nearly 40 years ago. Yeah, that's a long time ago. That means we might be in our late 50s or near 60, Darren. We served in the summer of 1980. We were in the Manchester, England mission. We served in Withington, which is just south of Manchester. We are not going to relive our mission experiences for our listeners tonight. We we just enjoyed the time we spent together. Darren was my senior companion. He's my second companion. We worked really hard and helped people come unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. But... What we are going to talk about is Darren has a really unique life story. He is the chairman of the Northwest Band of Shoshone Nation. And uh, we'll talk about that. And that group um, specifically joined the church in this area. And we're going to just talk about the history of that nation. It's some of the really difficult things that have happened to that group of people, their conversion to the church, and what Darren is doing now. Um, spends many days speaking and teaching and educating people. So is that a fair introduction, Darren? That is a fair introduction, and thank you for having me. Um, and I enjoy the work you do. Thanks. What the, the, the service you provide is, is needed at this time in this world. So and thank Darren, you for doing that. You've been, you've been come, kind to come to a couple, at least one of my LGBTQ presentations. I met your wife, and I appreciate you being uh, willing to step in that space, and I appreciate your support. Um, just introduce us to um, your nation. What, how, where, just give us the basics like okay. you do everywhere. The Northwestern Band of Shoshone Nation is indigenous to the Salt Lake Valley. That would be our southern border. We shared it with the Ute Nation and the Goshute tribe. It's kind of a no-man's land. Uh, our northern boundary would have been uh, Snake River up by Pocatello. Our eastern boundary would have been into Wyoming. And then the western boundary would be a little bit into Nevada. But uh, two days after the Mormon pioneers got here, uh, our chief, Sagwich, uh, took 10 of his men and traveled to Salt Lake City to meet with that first group of pioneers. Wow. Uh, the, the amazing thing is uh, the Utes had been there the day before making a pitch on this is their land. If you want to stay, you need to pay us for that. Sagwich was unfortunate in that he got there the second day. Uh, they didn't meet with the prophet that day because of his illness. They met with a man named Heber C. Kimball, well known in our I've religion. heard of that man. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, Heber C. Kimball told him this. He said, uh, lands do not belong to you. They belong to the Lord. And we calculate to plow and plant it. And then he went on to say that no man shall have the power to sell his inheritance, for he cannot remove it. It belongs to the Lord. So if you can imagine with that beginning, you have two groups of people really living two different lifestyles. The Shoshone people were hunters and gatherers. They traveled with the changing seasons. Uh, they traveled to certain areas when the game was plentiful and the seeds and berries were abundant. Uh, hard way of life, if you can imagine. Probably never more than a couple of days away from starvation. But I think it was a happy life 
they lived a life of family, of service to one another. One thing I like to tell people is Native Americans didn't have any concept of personal property. They lived almost the United Order constantly and took care of one another. And, and that point is going to be significant later on, years later. But um, that was the beginning. We were here. We How had... did Brigham Young even communicate with your tribal leader? Because you spoke Shoshone, and they, they spoke did, English, but, but I think. They did. The, the Shoshone, there was a couple of people in the Shoshone tribe that spoke English. Wow. Because of, uh, Sagwitch was born in 1822. So he was born right in the middle of the fur trading era. And so he never really knew a time in his life without the presence of the white man his whole life. There have been trappers that come through periodically to trade their furs and other things. And that's where the Shoshone would get pots and pans and rifles and knives. And they looked forward to those rendezvous. And so that language was uh, picked up along the way. But they may do. I'm not sure how that first communication went. But one thing about the LDS people, they write everything down. And so from the archives of the LDS church, we know that Sagwitch met two days wow. after they got to the valley, according to their records. And, and they recorded what was said. And so uh, thank goodness for the LDS church and our, our record keeping. But... Uh, so that was generally the way of life. Sagwitch was friendly to those first group of pioneers. They told them what seeds they could eat, what roots and plants they could uh, use for medicines and other things. And they were really a godsend to a people that were brand new to a Salt Lake Valley. That's cool. Our uh, home base, though, would have been the Cache Valley up by Logan. And if you've ever been there, I mean, it's, it's a mountain valley surrounded by beautiful tall mountains, lots of wild grasses, lots of, uh, rivers, streams, lakes. So plenty of game, plenty of fish, plenty of berries and seeds. And it was really a place that the Shoshones would have stayed forever. The, the other significant thing about that area was that's where they wintered. They wintered on the Boa Ogai or what the white settlers started calling the Bear River. Oh, old guy translated means big river. So uh, that was always the wintering place for the Shoshone people. You might ask yourselves, well, Cache Valley is just a little bit colder in the winter than other places, and why would they winter there? But it was because of the many hot springs that were along the river. I mean, it has more hot springs than any other place in the country per capita. Wow. So... Uh, that's kind of the deal. We could have stayed there forever until 1855. As more and more saints came into the, the valley, Brigham Young was now looking for other lands to, to send people. And uh, he sent scouts out, and they discovered a land that was rich in resources, and it was the Cache Valley. And in 1856, Brigham Young sent Peter Mon. Uh, a settler who had been in the Tooele County area and had two crops of, of plants eaten by crickets and, and grasshoppers and everything else. And I think he finally told Brigham Young, we can't do it out here in Tooele, and can you send me somewhere else? And so they sent those uh, first group of saints north to colonize the Cache Valley for good. If you can imagine, he sends them there in September 
late September. No homes, no lodges, no place really. And, and in a high mountain valley like that, it's getting really cold at night. The snows come a little bit sooner than everywhere else. And uh, he really, they really struggled, the saints did. They called it Mons Fort. Uh, right outside of Sardine Canyon, they established Mons Fort, which is today Wellsville, wow. Utah. But in his journals, he writes about Sagwich, about how Sagwich really saved the day for those people, helped them build lodges, helped them identify food sources in the fall, what they could find and eat, and uh, just really saved them the first few winters there, and especially that first winter. So in those early days, uh, all the writings from Peter Mon, they he calls Sagwich the friendly one, which which tells me something that there were other groups of Native Americans going through that area because it was a travel corridor for other tribes, the Blackfeet, and some of the some of the Utes would make it over into there, but there were other tribes going through that were not as friendly to the immigrants and and the Mormon pioneers. So it, the writings from the church leaders really suggest that Sagwich was one that was really on their side that they could count on. So uh, that's pretty cool to, to know that that's who he was his whole life. He was always looking to build bridges and extend hand in friendship. How many generations are you from him? Sagwich is my great, great, great grandfather. So that's four or five. Yeah. And so, well, yeah, he, and we'll get to it later, he ends up joining the church. So from him to me, I'm a sixth generation. Sixth generation. Uh, Shoshone Latter-day Saint. So, If I, you know, I just don't know this history. I think that's one of the things that for you listeners out there, I'm learning this for the first time. I've lived in the Salt Lake Valley. I knew there were Native Americans here, but I don't know anything about that history. I don't know if we were good to the Native Americans, if we were bad, a little bit of both. And I think you'll, if I had come with Brigham Young into the Valley, would I have seen Native Americans here, you know, just in in whatever was the right term, I'm using Caucasian terms, villages or throughout yes. the Valley or would the Valley just, cause I'm, I think I some as a primary kid just thought the Valley was empty and there was nobody here. Yeah. And that's not true. You would have, if you would have been with that first group of pioneers, you would have uh, seen Native Americans pretty much on your trek across the country, especially though prominent when you got to Wyoming and then down through this area. And especially the Utes uh, really controlled and had thousands of, of tribe members living in Utah County and spread really? over in the, in, in the Salt Lake County on the southern end. So you would have uh, known them. And I think Brigham Young, when they first got here, was wary of the, of the local Indians and whether they were going to be friendly or not. And I think what was significant is that after the first two days, he had met with the leaders of both nations that had been here and probably had a little better feeling about things going forward. And so, uh, yeah, I think that eased a lot of fears. Brigham Young's policy was always, uh, it was easier to feed them than to fight them. And, and I say that because Brigham Young was in the safety of downtown Salt Lake with plenty of people around for protection. 
he wasn't one of you know his stewards that was living a hundred miles away out in the middle of a canyon by themselves trying to fend for themselves so uh, yeah, it's not lost on me that, you know, his policy was something a little different from what some of the local, the saints that were in Logan and other places that were sent there, uh, their attitude was just a little bit different. They were fighting every day to survive. And so, you know, once the saints established themselves in Cache Valley, the resources just became scarce. So if, if you're a Shoshone man, you relied on the seeds, the wild grasses and, and game, the deer, elk, and buffalo. And now you have people that are building fences, they're bringing their cattle. That first year, the, the Latter-day Saint pioneers took 3,000 head of cattle to the Cache Valley because of the wild grasses, just a beautiful place. And so now... Those resources that the Shoshone had relied on, that delicate balance of life, was gone. Now the game and fish are being hunted by the same pioneers. There were uh, too many pressures on our lifestyle. Now the pioneers had an agricultural lifestyle as well. They planted crops. They had other means of survival. To the Shoshone people, it was just, they knew one way. And so that was the only way they knew. And so... After 56, for the next few years, pressures really started mounting. And, and I say, you know, there were Indian depredations. I think our people had three options uh, when we got to about 1862. Uh, beg for food, starve, or steal. Now, the Native Americans didn't have that concept of personal property. So I tell people, if I'm a Shoshone man with a family, and my family's starving, and I see a pioneer family with three cattle out in their field. I'm going to take one. And the funny thing is with it's that. It's very is, helpful. Yeah. My grandmother always said, Darren, we never stole anything. We're always collecting rent. And so I always get a chuckle about that's a, that. That's a good statement. But, uh, you know, to the pioneers, we were stealing. I mean, but we didn't have that concept. And so... Um, after 62, letters start coming in from the local saints in Cache Valley. And not only the local saints, but those using the California and Oregon trails that cut through that heart of our land. And uh, I'm sure we were stealing things. I'm sure we were causing trouble just because we needed to survive. Those letters started to be written by the saints. And they were finding their way to Salt Lake. And they found their way to a federal judge here in Salt Lake who issued arrest warrants for Sagwich, Bear Hunter, and Chief Pocatello, the three main Shoshone chiefs at the time. And uh, what happens next is, you know, led to one of the largest massacre of Native Americans in the history of the U.S. Those arrest warrants, there was nobody to really serve those arrest warrants. There wasn't a you know, local sheriff up in Cache Valley that could serve those. And they found their way up to Camp Douglas. Now, Camp Douglas is a whole nother story. Those troops were California volunteers. They'd signed up in California to go fight in the Civil War. And halfway across Nevada, the California volunteers get new orders from the government saying, 
I know you signed up to fight in the Civil War, but we need you in Salt Lake City. We need you to babysit the Mormon people. We think the Mormons are going to succeed from the Union, maybe join the Mexicans. We're not sure what they're going to do, but we don't have a good feeling about what they're going to do. And we want you to go establish a camp in Salt Lake, aim your cannons out over the valley, be there to make sure they don't do anything stupid. And not only that, you can also oversee the protection of the overland mail route that cut through the area. So that's what Colonel Patrick Connor and his men did. They established Camp Douglas by the University of Utah and uh, sat there and didn't have a more boring job than to watch you know, a bunch of renegade Mormons who were not that at all, you know, living a peaceful life, and they'd signed up to fight. So now you get an arrest warrant issued by a federal judge saying, we've got Indian troubles, you know, less than 80 miles away to the north, and we need somebody to go serve these arrest warrants. And so Patrick Connor uh, volunteered. But he told the person that gave him the arrest warrants is, I have no intentions of arresting anyone. I'm going to make sure we get rid of the problem once and for all. And he actually did something I th thought was kind of stupid. He did an interview with the, in the Salt Lake Tribune. And they printed that, and he said that uh, it was his intention to make sure everyone was killed. He said, nits make lice. It was his Everyone meaning the, the Indians? The Indians. Okay. That he was going to make sure that uh, the, and nits make lice means that he was going to even kill the babies so they didn't have a chance to grow to adulthood. Wow. So he had no intentions of arresting anyone. And was that just how, what was the mindset in a federal troop to do? Was that just a, was that an outlier type of a mindset or was that the mindset? I think that was the mindset of the federal government. I mean, you have Andrew Jackson and the Indian Removal Act. Is he the you president have, of the country during this time or uh, kind of in there? Close, yeah. Okay. So you have all these pressures from the national that Indians are less than human. It's okay to kill an Indian if you run into one because we dehumanize it doesn't, them. Yeah, they're not yeah, human. Absolutely. So I think that spilled over into a little bit out here. I think the pioneers had a little different take on it because they'd had interaction with the with the local tribes, and in a lot of cases, the local tribes really went out of their way to help them. So they were beginning to see them as brothers and sisters and, and somebody uh, that they needed maybe to have a stewardship over. And not only that, uh, if you look at the religious aspect of it, if you're a good Latter-day Saint, you have in your possession a sacred book that was translated by the gift and power of God on golden plates. And in the title page of the Book of Mormon, it says it's written for the Lamanites to come forth in the, the latter days and talks about this covenant people. So I think the, the saints that were here in the valley, especially the good ones that knew their Book of Mormon and, and the leadership especially, it wasn't lost on Brigham Young that, hey, from our book of scriptures, these are the covenant people. We have a responsibility and charge to convert and make sure you know they're brought into the fold. And so I think from the LDS perspective, uh, it was a little different than what the narrative was nationally, for sure. But you have now a group of California volunteers. They don't sh 
They hate the Mormons. They're there despising uh, having to do what they have to do. And so when they get those orders, it was it was an easy call to go, you know, brutalize and take care of the Indians in any way possible. And that's what happened on January 27th. The troops left Salt Lake City and headed north in the cover of darkness, actually. And you'll get a kick out of this. They were led by a, a Mormon scout, Porter Rockwell. Wow. Um, he, he took the job for $5 to lead those troops to, he knew where the encampment was, their winter encampment. And so he accepted the responsibility of taking Connor and his men north. We don't have any record, and I've had people ask, do you think he got involved with any of the killing? And and we don't have a record of that, and I doubt he did. Uh, some of the oral history said there was a group of white men that stayed up on the bluff and didn't participate in the, in the, the massacre. And I believe that uh, as colorful as he was, I think he probably sat that one out. And so uh, on the morning of January 29th, Chief Sagwich got up as usual early in the morning. He stepped, stepped outside of his teepee and surveyed the area. The hills to the southeast, and if you've been there, it's down in a river bottom, and there's a plateau just to the south and, and east, and it, it appeared to be covered in a steaming mist. And he didn't really understand. It looked like a cloud almost on the edge, and... He, he didn't really understand what it was until the clouds started moving down the embankment. And then he realized what was, was taking place. The troops from Camp Douglas had arrived. They actually knew they were coming. Um, the night before the massacre, an old medicine man in the tribe named Tindup had a dream. And he foresaw the calamity which was about to take place. In his dream, Tindup said he saw his people being killed by pony soldiers. That's how he explained it. And he woke everyone up, including the chiefs, told everyone about his dream, and urged everyone to leave that night. It wasn't as if Sagwich and the other chiefs did not believe Tindup. They did. But they'd had interaction with the military before. So this wasn't the first time they'd seen the military. But they had always been able to parlay or negotiate a settlement with the with the army. And if there were uh, somebody that had caused trouble or stole horses, they would give up those who had done it and, and move on. And so it really wasn't uh, a concern to Sagwich and Bear Hunter and Pocatello that the army might attack and not ask questions. They thought they could negotiate and see what, what they could do because they'd done it before. But uh, Tindup left that night with about 30 other individuals in the cover of darkness. Now, if you can imagine, January 29th in Cache Valley, the locals said on the morning of the massacre, it was below zero. The Bear River was frozen slightly. And so, and, and I'm sure what factored into the chief's decision also was how are we going to move 600 men, women, and children in the middle of the night uh, somewhere else and, and not leave tracks. So, you know, so, you know, I can see they're wanting to stay and especially with what had happened in the past, nothing ever happened in the past. So, but so Sagwich is there. He sees the mist. It, he appears, it lowers. He knows that the troops are on their way. He wakes everyone up, gets them ready and says, 
you know, we're not sure what's going to happen here, but uh, be ready. If we need to fight, we will. And my grandmother would tell me, and, and all of our history is more of an oral history, and that's who we are. But my grandmother started writing down all of these stories years later when she got her English degree. And, and her grandfather was actually in the massacre and survived it. So wow. she learned firsthand yeah. uh, what had taken place. So Sagwich readied his people. The troops got to the Bear River and started crossing it in a low point on the Bear River. And all of a sudden started to fire upon the Indians. And, um, but if you can imagine what is a, an arrow compared to the new uh, rifles, repeater rifles and sidearms that the soldiers had. And after about 15 minutes, which it probably was a pretty decent battle for 15 minutes, but the Indians had probably expended every piece of weaponry they had in that first 15 minutes. 17 soldiers were killed that day, and Connor in his report said that uh, almost all of them died in that first initial attack on the village. But by then they were out of ammo anyway. And so what happened after that was a mass slaughter, uh, men, women, and children, babies. There's a journal from one of the soldiers that said, and I don't want to be too graphic, but he said it was decided after about an hour to save on ammunition, we'd kill the babies by grabbing their ankles and swinging them around and hitting their heads on rocks oh. as opposed to trying to just shoot them. And so... It was just brutal. The women were raped, and, and the men and women were just killed, uh, merciless. And so what started as a battle for about 10 minutes quickly turned into the largest massacre of Native Americans in the history of the U.S. The largest. We believe so I... more than 400 to 450 uh, people lost their lives that day. Historians and will tell you that uh, Connor said that there were 224 that were killed, but he only counted the men, and he didn't even call them men. He called them bucks. So dehumanized, dehumanized again, yeah. this group of people. So, and the reason we know it was that large because the next day, uh, two men from Franklin, Idaho, which was the nearest LDS community went through with their wagons looking for survivors. And uh, they made one pass through, and one of the brothers counted 461. And on their second uh, pass through, one counted 480. So they said it was really hard to count, though, because the bodies were 10 deep in some of the areas where the ravine was and things. So, But we believe, just based on the number of lodges and how many people generally would be in a lodge, uh, there were more than 80 lodges. We believe that number was um, that perished were was close to 450 in that range. Now, if you put it in context, uh, Sand Creek, there's a national park at Sand Creek in Colorado, and there was about 124 natives who were massacred that day. Wounded Knee, Washita, some of the big... Uh, Native American massacres in the history of the U.S. that we have facilities on that, that talk about the story are pale in comparison to what we have here. And so um, it's really important to me, and, and one of the things I'm on now is just making sure that our story's told, 
we were able to purchase all of that Bear River Massacre site uh, about 18 months ago. 700 acres. Seven. Who did, was it owned by the government or was it in private no, hands? No, 550 of it was owned by uh, a farmer who had passed away, and it was in a trust that his, his children ran. Ralph Johnson is the, ran the family trust. And so I contacted him, and over the next six months, we negotiated the sale of that property. In the meantime, I purchased another 150 acres on the periphery just to make sure that those uh, that sacred burial ground is protected. It was January, and no one was buried. So those bones lie just beneath the surface in, in wow. almost all occasions. So it is a sacred site. Was the family that owned the farm aware of the history of the, that area? Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, I talked to a lot of the local farmers in Preston. Preston, Idaho is the closest town to the massacre site. Preston's Pres north of it. Preston is south, south two miles of south of the massacre. So this is in Idaho. For some uh, reason, I'm thinking this is northern Utah. But no, it's, it's not. in it, and Idaho wasn't uh, created until 1871. So this is so it's Utah, the Utah ter territories territory. back then, and so the closest settlement was Franklin, which is about uh, 11 miles from the site, maybe 10. And so now, today, though, Preston, Idaho, sits there two miles south of the massacre site. So that would be the closest township to that now. But uh, And the local farmers seem to, you were going to say, they seem to be aware of what happened. They are aware of it. In fact, um, when I was making uh, calls to buy that property to find out who owned it, they, they told me who owned it. And when I finally got a hold of Ralph Johnson, and he said that my dad, Ben, he said his grandfather used to, uh, you know, a few years after the massacre, they tried tilling up the ground so they could plant it. And he said human remains were just coming up everywhere. And so it was decided from that point on that they were only going to graze cattle wow. on that site and not disturb the land anymore. And he said my, my grandfather and great-grandfather made that conscious decision to make sure that they didn't disturb any more bones. And so uh, one of the locals found a saber that was one of the military men from Camp wow. Douglas's saber there. Not sure if he met his demise or if he just dropped it. <laughs> so, um, How did the Mormons respond to what happened at the Bear River Massacre? That's a great question. And, and, and you may not know that. I do know that. Okay. I, I do. Uh, in a couple of my talks I give, I talk it's, about... They were sort of the problem in the Mormons' eyes because they were... It's the Mormons that brought attention to this situation in the first place. The federal government, you know, conducted the massacre, but you... I'm just... They, they conducted the massacre, but after they were receiving letters from the local Mormons yeah, saying, so, come take care of the problem. I'm thinking and, this is... There's some responsibility on the, I on think the hands so. of Mormons here. There is, and, and I'm going to cut the... the LDS people some slack. They wanted the Indian problem to go away. And I think when they called for the troops, I, I, I'm i going to just give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they wanted the problem to go away. Maybe they wanted us moved. And, and that wouldn't have been an odd request because they were moving Native yeah. Americans around at that time. The reservation system started in 1850. So I'm sure they thought, well, just move them to a reservation, get them out of our hair, move them somewhere. 
but uh, I'm sure that they were horrified, you know, when they went and counted 450 dead and men, women, and children. And so, but the feelings of the local saints began to emerge uh, sometime later. Uh, Henry Ballard, Bishop of the Logan First Ward, uh, made the comment that the, that the movements of Colonel Connor was an imposition uh, of, from the Almighty God and that Colonel Connor punished them, meaning our people, without us having to do it. So the, you started getting statements by people like that. And then you have Peter Mon, who was... Interpret that statement just so our listeners understand well, your interpretation. What he, was, what he was saying was, you know, the Indians had been a source of great... In fact, they say this, they'd been a source of great annoyance to us. And they went so far as to some of them said, we've been feeding them, and yet still some of the wicked spirits among them are stirring up trouble against us. And so I think they really tried to do the best they could. But you have to understand, they're, they were in a tough spot too. It, they weren't living gravy train life up in the, you know, the Cache Valley. It was a struggle to live every day for a, a normal pioneer family. I'm sure they... So this Bishop of the Logan First Ward was... I don't want to... Uh, sort of thinking this was divine that the federal government got involved and took care of this. Without us having to without, do it. And that was sort of God's hand. Yeah. And and kind of, you know, and in fact, some of the other leaders said that uh, it was an act of the almighty God in our behalf. And so you start getting statements from church leaders like that. And I think that was pretty much the, the sentiment. I mean, you have a group of people, it was their manifest destiny. They were here because it was God's will that they come here. Well, was it God's will to mass, you know, to just get rid of a people that were already here? The problem with that for me is the Mormon people themselves had suffered so much hate and injustice as they truck across America to find a land that they could worship their God as they'd like. It's hard for me to believe that they could be found guilty of doing the same thing once they got here. I mean, it was their manifest destiny. It was their way. It, this was our land. God wants us to be here, and we'll do whatever we need to do to make sure that happens. It uh, doesn't matter if there's an Indian tribe that was here that was peaceful, that uh, lived a certain lifestyle that didn't jive with our lifestyle at all. Both groups couldn't coexist almost. And so, you know, it's not... Peter Mon, in his last letter, dated February 4th, so he's the area authority in Cache Valley. He was tabulating the number of killed. And then he just said that uh, they've rejected the way of life and salvation that had been taught to them from time to time. And thus they have perished relying upon their own strength and wisdom. So that's how he characterized it. Look, we tried. We tried teaching them the right way. They rejected it and wanted to do their own deal. So, yeah, they were massacred, but there's nothing we could do about it. And so somebody asked me the other day, what, how could that have been avoided? And, and, you know, I'm not sure how it could have been avoided, but I think if the, the Latter-day Saint people had made a much bigger effort to reach out a hand of friendship 
and say, look, we're brothers here and let, let us teach you our ways. Let us teach you how to farm and agri- live that agricultural lifestyle. And, and I think if more of an effort was made in the 1850s to, to really grab hold of that covenant people, according to them, that uh, it maybe could have ended a little different than it did. But I, I just think, you know, they felt that they were there because God wanted them to be there. And it, it didn't matter what what happened. And so it's really a fascinating story because you're Shoshone and you're active LDS. Yeah, and we haven't even got to that point. <laughs> but just one more thing before we leave the massacre site, which is interesting to me. Uh the the locals in Preston wanted to remember the massacre and what it what it meant. In nineteen thirty two, the good people of Franklin County in Preston got together and erected a monument on the site. It's a rock monument. It's a DUP monument. And to really... What's a DUP monument? Daughters of Utah Pioneers. Okay. So it's one of their monuments. Uh, just off the highway, they're really close to the Bear Massacre site. And the monument was meant to tell the story of the events of that fateful day. And I tell people, humans have great memories for what you want to remember. But when you commemorate a battle like that, you tend to forget the uglier parts of history. Right. And you only focus on the heroism of the soldiers and saints. And that's the kind of Daughters of Utah Pioneer monument that exists there today. It's not a monument about my people. Yeah. It becomes a monument about the brave soldiers and the pioneer women who took care of them. And so if you were to stop as a traveler and read the plaque on that DUP monument, it talks about the brave soldiers fought some savages here. And then the pioneer women trained through trials and necessities of frontier living, accepted the responsibility of caring for the wounded until they could be removed to Camp Douglas. So I always ask people when we go there and and take a tour, I say, is that really what happened? You know, the problem with monuments for me is that it gives you one point of view from one generation's perspective. It's, it's like a view from a window that someone carefully placed to exclude a whole quadrant of a beautiful landscape. Monuments only let you see what they want you to see. And that's what you have there today. You have a, just the narrative is so restrictive and doesn't even talk about our people unless it's talking about our women and children combatants. And, and, you know, the savage life that we lived. So uh, you got to be careful with monuments. And, and, and I just tell people, you know, read the monument, but think for yourself, is that really what happened? And is there another side to this story that, that we don't know? When I visit with you about this, I don't sense anger. Do you get angry at times when you <sighs> see a monument like that or you see even people today that— have that window into this chapter of history that's not accurate. You know what? I, I, I mean, don't... how do you manage that? Because it's a, I don't sense a lot of anger, but I sense complete understanding with the historical events and your own people were wronged. And I ask that question because I think you probably have some principles you could share with our listeners that are also wronged at times or their people are wronged. Yeah. And, and let me just add this and then I'll tell you why. And because it relates, uh, Ten years after the massacre, Sagwich has a dream. 
in his dream, he uh, is So he visited. survived the massacre, obviously. So he, he survived, and there were a handful that survived, 130 total. Ten years after that event, he has a dream. And in his dream, three men appeared to him in his dream and told him the existence of God among the Mormon people. And he was told that he needed to send uh, someone to Salt Lake and they would come and tell him how he needed to live and quit his roaming ways and live like the his pioneer neighbors were living. And so Sagwich made that. And long story short, uh, a missionary was called named George Washington Hill that had been living in Ogden. He knew the Shoshone language fluently. He wow. served a mission to the Lemhi Shoshones in central Idaho in 1855. Now you're going, Lemhi Shoshones? Lemhi is a Book of Mormon term, but it was the Lemhi Fort, and it was in central Idaho up by the Salmon River. And I think that the, the missionaries that were up there converting these Shoshone called it the Lemhi Shoshones. Uh, they didn't call themselves that, so... But at the end of the day, uh, in May, Sagwich uh, was visited by George Washington Hill one morning. And uh, the next day, after hearing the gospel preached to them for the whole day, uh, 102 people were baptized. The next day. The next this day. Is like Pe this is like Peter. I'm thinking it's Peter in the day of in Acts. They pricked in their hearts, yeah. and Peter said, what do you do next? And he said, you get baptized. Sure. And so, but get this. That's incredible. They're baptized in the in the Bear River. In the Bear River. The same Bear River that Sagwich saw the almost entire destruction of his people 10 years earlier. So here's a man, my great-great-great-grandfather, who met Brigham Young, met those saints, offered help the whole way, and then still continued to off, try to coexist in a world that really wouldn't allow, and now saw the massacre of his people, just injustices. And, and no, the massacre wasn't perpetrated by, by the Mormon pioneers, but it was absolutely, they were the cause of it. And did he know that? And if he knew I had that. interviewed him, yes, he, he would, would know have that. been angry. He would tell you that. The Mormon people started but this. But in all the readings we read about Sagwich, he wasn't an angry man. And, and there were plenty of Deseret News articles that say, uh, we've talked to Sagwich and, and he's reasonable and he's, he just has a balanced way of looking at life. And so I no, told this is a hero of mine. And so the other day, you know, I, I'm talking about this and someone said to me, you need to be more angry. Be, and because I made the statement, we as native Americans are not looking to have things made right. But I believe those that died at Bear River have a God-given right to be heard. I think their story needs to be told, and that's why I'm telling it. But he stopped me and said, but there are Native Americans around the country that still are angry. There's still, you know, there's issues there, and we need to work through those issues. And And how do you do it? How can you be so calm about all this? And and the only thing I can say is I, I must be wired a little bit like Sagwich was wired. Uh, I'll, I will always offer a hand in friendship, always. And and there are times that I think about it and think, oh my goodness, how it was horrible. It was horrific. But uh, I look at it a couple of ways. I look at, there's no sense in me being angry and mad about it because the people that would 
get the brunt of that weren't there. It was their ancestors that were there. Good point. And so do I really want to take out my frustrations on somebody that really doesn't deserve it? And so I, I just look at it as a way to, you know, bad things happen to all of us in our lifetime. They do. If we live long enough, we know somebody that's, that's had a really painful past. And, and our brothers and sisters today, those on the margins, those that are marginalized, they, they live a different life than the two of us live. And so that's not lost on me. So what can I do to make their life better? And how can I conduct myself in a Christ-like way that uh, will bring healing as opposed to anger to a situation? And so it's always easy for me to take that higher road, maybe because I wasn't there. If I was there, maybe I would act different, but I still think I'd probably be a little bit more like Sagwitch. That's my thought is you're, you're, you're being Sagwitch. I have felt, that Have thought. you felt his presence Absolutely. and your mission. You know what? I've, uh, I'll share this with you just because, you know, once we purchased the massacre site, it was always our goal to build a beautiful interpretive center on the site. And what is an interpretive center? An interpretive center would be a visitor center. Okay. So somewhere somebody can go and, but instead of a visitor center where you just go look at things, it'll be a place of learning that you can learn about the Shoshone culture. You can actually, will house a language program there that you can learn the language. You can learn what it was like for the Shoshone people and their pioneer neighbors and how that interaction caused friction at times. And then you're going to learn about the bat massacre, what caused it, what we think caused it, the outcomes of that horrific event. And then there will be a part in there about our conversion to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And really, what that conversion meant to us and who we are today because of it. Because that's really the story today is we're a native people that are still here. We're, we're, we have a thriving community. Our languages are still strong. We have a sense of community. We practice uh, our old ways. That's the wonderful thing about the church. Um, the church allowed the Shoshone people and Sagwich specifically to still practice some of their ancient uh, ceremonies that they had, even though they were members of a, a church now. And uh, they let them still do that. And we still do a little bit of that today. So when we started a fundraising campaign about 10 months ago. And my first visit was to the LDS church. And, uh, I met with Bishop Cosset and his counselors and an elder snow who's over church history. And they gave me one hour and I talked to them about what we've talked about today and, and bless their hearts. I mean, they were surprised at the history but Bishop Cosset is from France. from France. You know, I don't expect him to know every pioneer story ever told by man. And, and then as he sat there really somberly and listened, he really listened. He said, you know, he was, he was really touched by it. And then uh, they asked me what I'd like to see from the church. And I kind of told him and, and then they told me they'd get back with me. And it was a few months, but they got back with me in the, I mean, I, I'm just happy to report that the church gave a significant donation to the, the center. 
and, and helped us really kick off our fundraising campaign. I think they probably, when I left, did a little research with some of their church history historians that said, is this really what happened? I mean, can we verify some of this? And did it really take place the way he said it did? And I think absolutely uh, it was verified. In fact, I worked with the church uh, history library the last year. Volume two of the saints is going to include a lot of our story. That's cool. And and think about that. I mean, we have never been a part of church history ever, no. or the Shoshone story and the conversion of the Shoshone. So I just feel like we're making strides in all areas of the church to be more inclusive on what we what we talk about and who we speak about. I'm just so touched by this because I just feel the Shoshone nation that's gone before you and when their story is included in saints. That's mainstream, you know, on what's happened with the dedication. I'm just, I'm just touched during this podcast. Well, it's your, your role of, you know, all these different skills you have fundraising, working well with different groups of people, having a vision, bringing people together. I know you've got this wonderful relationship with Bishop Cosse and many people in the church and, I'm just touched by this. Talk about... Well, one thing Bishop Cosset said to me before I left his office that last time, because I, I, there was a moment there that we all paused, and I said, I, you know, I'm not a smart guy. I grew up in Syracuse, Utah, country kid, went to Clearfield High, University of Utah. That's my educational experience. And I said, you know, I'm not a fundraiser. I'm not this or that. But I said, Bishop... I have felt the influence of my people on the other side of the veil as I've tackled this journey. And uh, it's not lost on me that doors have been opened that, frankly, I'm not smart enough to get in. And, and just things are falling into place the way they should. And, you know, he paused for a few minutes and he said, can I tell you something with tears in his eyes? And he said, I just want you to know that uh, I feel impressed to tell you that there are those on the other side of the veil that are on a priesthood assignment from the Savior to help you accomplish what you need to accomplish for your people. And, you know, when he said that to me, it just confirmed to me what I've always felt. Um, there's a feeling in this journey I'm on. Sadrick calls the priesthood. And so, absolutely. I mean, what I didn't tell you is two days after Sagwich was baptized, he was called to Salt Lake and he was given the... Melchizedek priesthood by Demick Huntington, who had just been called to be a Lamanite patriarch. So Sagwich gets the priesthood two days upon his baptism. Two years later, Sagwich and his wife are the first Lamanite couple to receive their endowment in the endowment house in Salt Lake, and where they were the first Lamanite couple sealed as husband and wife for time and eternity by Wilford Woodruff in wow. the endowment house. And my great-grandfather, Moroni Timbimbu, was the first uh, Shoshone bishop or Lamanite bishop in the church in this modern dispensation. So we have a lot of firsts in my family, but I felt their presence. I've, I feel it today, and I feel it as I'm you know, trying to get indoors to raise more money to do this. And we're about halfway there with our goal in it less than a year. So I feel very blessed and fortunate that we've been able to get where we've at. 
I'm touched by what Bishop Cosse said. He's a family friend. Marsa oldest our oldest daughter married uh, Nico Lazarev. Nico's dad is French and his mother is American and Nico's dad is become a close friend with Bishop Cosse and there's not too many Frenchmen hanging around Salt Lake City. But I've just been impressed with him and his influence for good on my son-in-law, Nico. Sure. Um, and the good work that Bishop, and he's real, like you said. I mean, he's got a huge job in the church, but I love what you said, that he really listened. He did listen. And, and he's a guy from France. So absolutely. in some ways I'm thinking he'd be the least interested in the story because he's not connected with, you know, pioneer history. It's not in his, and I just admire him for doing that. And I love what he said, that you were on a, that there are people on the other side from priesthood assignment from the Savior. Talk about, um, I know that you were there with Spencer Cox and uh, maybe others for a dedication, but it sounds like there's still more fundraising needs going on. Sure. Well, every January 29th, we hold a commemoration at the site and uh, we have a one hour program. Spencer Cox always comes up and speaks at my request. We have three speakers. I speak for five minutes. Spencer takes six or seven minutes. And this year we had Sean Ray as the attorney general. That's right. Uh-huh. He's amazing. He's a good friend. He's become a really great friend of mine. And so he came up and he's pretty dynamic. And, you know, he's he's got other cultures other than Caucasian throwing, going through his veins. And he talks about native culture and being native Hawaiian and what that really means to be a native. And so, yeah, that, that stuff is just really powerful and beautiful. And we've never had anybody from Idaho show up, even though it's in the state of Idaho until this last year, the new governor in Idaho showed up for the first time Wow! and I gave him a few minutes on the, the program, but they've both been kind of instrumental in helping us raise money. The state of Utah. What are you trying to raise money for? To build that building, to build the interpretive center. Okay. So on the site that uh, you own the property. There's a local architect firm here in town called GSBS. They uh, did all the design work for us pro bono. Wow. They want to see this building happen. And so uh, we've we have them design a, a, a building for us, what it'll look like with a budget. Uh, I've been trying to raise $5 million. The state of Utah, this last legislative session, uh, appropriated us $750,000. Think about that. Wow. The state of Utah gave us, you know, three quarters of a million dollars for a building in Idaho. <laughs> and so, but every one of the lawmakers I spoke with, they were happy to do it. And it, I haven't talked to anybody that's pushed back or saying, what are you doing? You know, donating to a building in Idaho. We're a Utah tribe. But, um, I mean, it's going to bless the and lives. You're halfway of, through, you've we're, raised about half? We're about 2.5 million in. And what's your hope to raise the other 2.5 in a year or two? Uh, I'd like to have it done. I thought I could get it done in uh, the 5 million in two years. There was a part of me that thought, oh, I can do it much faster than that. But still at the end of the day, I mean, raising $5 million That's is a, a challenge. Deal. I mean, you just it's a challenge. And so we're about halfway there, though, in less than a year. But I think I'm... My goal is to have it all done by uh, by year two, to have it all done. I'd actually love to break ground this next spring and just get it going. And, and if we're getting close to the five, we'll break ground for sure. 
start That's building awesome. that building. So, but a lot of private donations. I'll bet we've received over a thousand ten dollar donations from people just to how give. How do people do, give us how are you, how people donate? There's them. a really good website that you can go to. It's boogai.org. It's spelled B O A O G O I dot org. And we'll put that in our podcast copy. Okay. I appreciate that. And what Boa Ogai is Big River. And so it's the Boa Ogai Interpretive Center, which will be at the, the massacre site. If you go on that website, it'll pull up pictures and history. You could spend hours on there just reading about the Shoshone people in the area. Look at all these old pictures we have. And then there's an online donation capability. You can click on and do a PayPal or a credit card. Or it gives us gives you our address of our tribal office if you're old school like my grandparents and want to write a check. So uh, there's all different kinds of avenues that you can get involved and help. Tell us how many Shoshone um, from your tribe are alive and what percent of those are in the LDS church? Well, if you can imagine, when you start with most of them being massacred and you have about 130 left uh, in 1863... We have 559 members of our tribe today. Most of us are one-fourth and one-eighth. I'd say 400 out of the 559 are, are that blood quantum. The reason is that we were not moved to a reservation. We assimilated or adapted. I, I like to say adapted. It's a softer word to Native Americans. Good. To our surroundings. And so what that meant, though, is we live in your communities. We're your neighbors. If you live on the Wasatch Front between Brigham City and Salt Lake, that's where most of those 559 live. We're in your communities. We're active participants in, in our communities. We go to PTA. Our kids go to your schools. What that means, though, is our, our children are marrying Caucasians and more times than not. So if you start, and you've got seven kids and four grand, fourteen grandkids. I'm not yes. sure if I mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. So and none of them married is... a Native American. Okay. So now you've diluted it a whole nother half percent, and so uh, you can rapidly see how you, you can breed yourselves right out of being recognized as a tribal nation. Now that will never happen because the government lets each tribe set their own blood quantum. There are tribes, Cherokee tribes in Oklahoma, that don't have a blood quantum. They have a descendancy. So if you can prove a, you're a descendant from a tribal member, it could be eight generations ago, they will recognize you on their tribal roles. That's cool. So uh, we recognize one-eighth today, and we may have to lower it to a sixteenth. And what percent are active LDS? Any I would say... Gosh, the majority still are very active LDS people. There were about three separate families that really survived the massacre, and one of them was Sagwich's line, which is my line. And so from Sagwich, his son that survived the massacre's name was uh, Jaeger after he was baptized. And so his name was Dabuzi before. It means jackrabbit. And so once he was baptized at 19... He ends up having 10 boys in his lifetime, and he named them all Book of Mormon prophet names. Wow. <laughs> and so the one son that he named as my great-grandfather is Moroni Timbimbu. So uh, 
Yeah, we've all been, so that whole line is still real active in the church. And, and a lot of the families are probably 450 out of the 559 are active. I mean, members of the church today, but it really shapes us differently. Not being on a reservation, you know, reservation life can be tough. You have alcoholism and drug abuse and unemployment and suicide that often find their way onto those reservations. And, and I just tell people, you know, not living on a reservation, we're not an entitlement program. And that's really what the reservation system turned Native Americans into today is you move here to this reservation and we'll take care of you. We'll give you the money. We'll give you the handouts. That's not us. And it will never be us. We pride ourselves on educating our people, getting jobs and participating in our communities and then being active in our tribal politics and active in our tribal culture. But that's a, that's a tough road to stay on because our kids are like your kids. You know, they want to look in their phone 24-7. And How many days are you out talking about this topic? Because I just know I'm Facebook friends with you, and it seems like you're, you know, you've been at Utah State today. How many days are you out talking about this? Four or five out of the seven. And I just did a, <laughs> my wife did a, so I didn't know she did this until today, but I shared it on my Facebook and another social media platforms. Uh, she showed a picture of me speaking Thursday in Salt Lake to a NEH group. Educators from around the country were here at the University of Utah. And I spoke to them Thursday. On Friday, I spoke at a stake camp out in Idaho. It was our guest speaker there. And then Sunday, I spoke in the park up at, in Logan to about 200 retirees from Arizona that were traveling through on tour buses that you know, we just, they sat in their lawn chairs and I sat in the middle of them and shared the story that you heard tonight. How do and people find you if they want you to speak? Do they go to this website, Darren? They can... Uh, they could go to that, but I, I prefer they contact me on social media. So they go to Facebook, Darren Perry. They can go Perry. to Fa Darren Perry on Facebook and uh, Shoshone Elder on Twitter. And we are the only two from Instagram. our mission that are on Twitter <laughs> at our age. And Peter Vowsden. Yes. There's three of us from <laughs> yeah. our era, but you're doing great Twitter's on Twitter. an interesting thing to me. I mean, it, it's different than Facebook. It is different. And so... The content is different. The people are different, but I find it, it keeps me, keeps me engaged. It keeps me on my toes with Twitter. So they find you at Shoshone Elder on Shoshone Twitter. Shoshone Elder on Twitter. Talk about um, the, the very best things that you bring from your LDS faith and from your Shoshone heritage, because you have these two beautiful parts of your life. I don't know if you can separate them and say that. I have this that's part of my life and my Shoshone heritage, and I have this that's part of the doctrine of our church, or if it's just one now sort of set of principles. Yeah, and this, I think the set of principles that go together is, if, if you remember the statement I made about uh, the Shoshone people, they didn't have any concept of personal property. So think about that. Think about taking care of your neighbor. If, if your neighbor had a need, no matter who they were, 
uh, you took care of them. Which is what the Shoshone people did. That's what first, they did. That's the way they to lived. the first Mormons that showed up. Absolutely. But that's the way they lived their life. Uh, can you think of anybody else that lived that way in their lifetime, 2,000 years ago? I mean, there's just principles there that the Shoshone people lived. They were humble. They took care of each other's needs. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't fight other tribes. Other tribes were always trying to take things from other tribes if there were resources they could take. So I'm not saying they lived a pure, unadulterated life. But what I'm saying is in that tribal culture, in that family that they lived, they lived the united order. They lived to take care of one another. And, and those are the same principles that we should be living as Latter-day Saints, looking out for the marginalized, looking out for the one that doesn't have, and, and making sure all of our needs are taken care of, uh, all of them, the spiritual, the physical, the mental, all of those things are important. Uh, and, and so that's just who my people were. And so it, it's an easy thing for me to live try to live that way. I mean, life gets in the way sometimes and you have different thoughts and feelings and stuff, but I would hope that my people lived the pure gospel of Jesus Christ before they even knew who he was. They had a belief in a great spirit that uh, could they could communicate to, and they believed this great spirit would bless their lives if called upon. And so... Uh, the fact that, you know, there was a God was never a problem for the Shoshone people. They'd always believed in that. They believed in spiritual leaders that could lay their hands on somebody and heal them. So when the, you know, the principles and practices of Mormonism, it had a familiar feel when it was introduced to those people. So uh, the fact that, you know, my people took care of one another, regardless of who they were. In fact, uh, I ran into a transgender uh, Navajo the other day in the airport, and uh, we have a special, we call them two spirits. And I've heard and, that. Explain that. Well, we just, we just feel like we don't look at them any different than anybody else, but we feel that they have been blessed in their life to have two different spirits, uh, the male and the female, and, and we almost honor them. For that, we we feel like it's been a privilege for for them to be blessed that way. So we don't look at it as really. I mean, you know, sometimes a way we can look at some of those people, and so we don't have any feelings one way or the. What we about just, a gay, um, do, do, two with a gay or lesbian person? Do you have any, you know? Is that a two-spirit thing again, or is that it's, kind it's, of... That wouldn't be a two-spirit, but Because it's, the two-spirit's more referring to male and female. Male and female. Coming together in one person to be a transgender person. But there are a lot of uh, LGBTQ Native Americans today. Many, many that are friends of mine. And so uh, we look at them almost as the same as two-spirits. We look at them as a way that... They may be a little bit different from us, but we we love and we recognize that difference, and we recognize them for the strengths that they can bring to the table. We're, we all have different things that we can bring to the table, and and their perspective on life uh, is not anything that we are afraid of or 
because it's different from ours. We we just love and respect them for it's who they are. So yeah, we've never had any feelings, you know, any other anything other than just pure love for those people. So it's really fascinating, and I think of these sort of dual. You know, you have this um, belief of the church, you're a Latter-day Saint, and you also that's part of your identity, and you're Shoshone, and that's part of your identity. And that second identity is more of a, you know, as a group that's been marginalized. And I think I think of all the different groups of people I know that are part of their identity is sort of a marginalized identity, mm-hmm. whether if it's a different race or LGBTQ or how women feel sometimes. And, and they also hold dual identity as believing Latter-day Saints. And it's kind of, I don't know, I just thinking in the back of my mind some parallels here because that's why I was interested, and I think you did a good at talking is the principles. Sometimes being in a marginalized group, there's pain and there's anger and there's feeling your voice isn't heard and you're not, you don't belong and, and you're different. And so that's why I just interested how you've navigated that and you haven't, you you've been able to manage the anger and the and the pain of the history and in, in a really thoughtful way and. And maybe the real hero in this story is Sagwatch, Sagwitch, Sagwitch, yeah, um, for what he was able to do and um, the spiritual strength of him that obviously preceded his joining the church and being able to, you know, work through really difficult things and still be open to join the church. We'd love to have him on the podcast. You're, oh, absolutely. You're, you're like as good, <laughs> and I think you're honoring him with your voice because I think you're doing what he'd want you to do is build I think bridges I, I think and bring I people too. together. I think I am too. And uh, at the end of the day, he embraced a gospel. He didn't embrace the Mormon church because we get in trouble with the church as people. We're imperfect people. And so we yeah, tend so, to get in our, our ourselves' way in dealing with other people. And so uh, if we can stay out of the way, who'd the Savior go to? Every time it was the marginalized and those who were downtrodden and other things. He didn't go to the ones that were the ruling party of the day. He spent his time with those that we should be spending our time with. And and so, you know, I navigate all this. I just look at the wonderful church that I belong to, that I have a firm testimony in, is run by good men trying to do a wonderful job, but they're imperfect like all of us. And so they're going to make mistakes at times, but if you can keep your eye on the ball and the ball to me would be the pure gospel of Christ, taking care of one another's needs, uh, lifting a burden when you can uh, the way he lived. And I think that's the way Sagwich and those early people lived constantly and so anything I can do to kind of try to live up to that and not add anything negative to someone else's life is is good to me. And so I strive every day to make sure that I reach out and, and make sure somebody's day goes a little better. Love that. Talk about in closing um, your interaction with President Nelson. In May of 2019, I saw you and President Nelson together and also about the book that you're writing. Okay. Uh, this last year, the Governor Herbert called and said, would you serve on the commission that plans the Transcontinental Railroad 150th anniversary? He wanted me to give the Native American perspective throughout the year on what it did to Native communities. 
And so I did that. I was able to speak probably 40 times at various places about the impact of the Transcontinental Railroad. Well, the wonderful thing that came out of that is uh, on May 10th, on the day of the anniversary, I met at the and what site. year anniversary was it? Was it, it was 150th. It was 150th. Of uh, the Transcontinental Railroad out at Promontory. And so, but it was a celebrated event. There, senators and, you know, all kinds of people were there. But it was awesome to see President Nelson there. And he actually took a swing at the spike. And that's, he actually gave remarks. He probably talked for about 10 minutes. That's great. On that event and how it changed the Brigham Young's way of life and what the railroad did to this community. And so he spoke ab about that. And I happened to be on the program as well, not in a speaking mode. I would have loved to have spoke, but they didn't want to hear what I had to say. So, um, but I was part of a wreath laying ceremony and, but what that did is it allowed me into the VIP area where you make your escape after you speak. And I was standing there in my headdress, in a headdress that was owned by Sagwich. Owned by Sagwich. Uh, it was his headdress, and it's bald eagle feathers and just this big, beautiful headdress. And I've got a sports coat on and jeans. And so I'm standing there on the path, and I see President Nelson making his way towards me. And... uh Richard Turley, who's was right on his elbow, and Richard Turley and I are friends, and, and he's he made in the church eye, PR department. Uh huh. He made contact with eye contact with me and said, "I'm coming." So, right when they got to me, uh, he said, "President Nelson, this is Darren Perry, chairman of the Northwestern Band of Shoshones," and uh, President Nelson was gracious enough to stop, and we talked for about one minute. And I said, I, I just said, you know, it's an honor to meet you. And I want you to know that our tribe joined the church in a mass baptism in 1873. We were here when Brigham Young got to the valley. I, I think our people helped those first group of pioneers get settled and, and transition into a way of life that was new to them in a new country. And I said, it's just an honor as, as the chief of the nation to be able to welcome you here to the promontory was a sacred site to the Shoshone people. And so they were there when the golden spike was driven 150 years ago. And I just wanted him to know that we're still here. Uh, we're, we're people still here. that uh, is still here. So yeah, it was pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah. And talk about your book. My book has been about three years in coming, but it's it's a lot of what you heard tonight. Good. Uh, when I heard a quote by Winston Churchill a few years ago that history is always written by the victors, and then I go to history class in high school and things, and none of the stories that my grandmother told me were in her history books, and I thought, we have a really one-sided view of what the Shoshone history is, and so... I set out about three years ago to start writing down our history from how we lived culturally, what was important to us, and then um, what the coming of the pioneers meant, that interaction, what it looked like, the massacre, and talk quite a bit about that. And then I talk about the conversion to the LES church and then who we are today. So that will be uh, in my book, I think, 
two or three months out now. We're just doing the final edits with BCC Press, which I'm really excited to uh, be a part of that team now. But uh, I'd say before maybe maybe early fall, uh, watch for it. It'll be out. We're working through. So fall of 2019. Yes. Okay. For sure. I'd like it out by uh, Thanksgiving. It's Good. my favorite holiday, and I speak almost every night of the week for all of November. So it would be nice to have it there too. That's the first question I get when I give a lecture somewhere is, where can we buy your book? And for years I've not had one. I think one, it's so. great you're buying a book. And I go back to Elder Cosset, Bishop Cosset, and I have to think this is part of your divine charge to write down these stories that you have heard, these oral stories that you're familiar with. You're bringing, this is you, Darren, you're bringing the oral stories that you know better than any Shoshone, I assume, and maybe there's other in your tribe that know them as well, but you're bringing that plus the written LDS portion of that, I assume that's kind of both of it, mm -hmm. into this book that then forever keeps this conversation going. And and then I love where Saints too has it, and it just becomes part of the narrative. And I think sure. it helps us as an LDS people understand better our history and and brings us perspective. And I think it's great. It's kind of ironic. And I'm just you, you know my older brother. You've never met him, but he's a history professor at University of Oregon, and he's an expert in this area. Mm -hmm. He's written a book called Surviving Genocide: Native Americans in the United States from the American Revolution to Bleeding Kansas. And and so he's kind of in the same space that you're in and writing about it. And I think um, there's a real, it's just kind of turning our hearts to the fathers. I think there's a real interest, even if we're not Native American, to understand our history. And as you point out, to understand it from both sides. And not just that monument that you referenced that was probably done with real good intent, but it Absolutely. may not really give a window in the reality of the situation, and that's what you're doing. Any final yeah. thoughts for our listeners? No, uh, I just appreciate the the venue and the avenue to be able to talk about something that is so important to me. Uh, I, I've said it before, you know, those people that gave their life at Bear River, I just feel like they have a God-given right to be heard. Their voices speak to me from the dust, and it's important that I just convey uh, that they were real people. They had families. They had relationships. They had good things in their they life and not and good dreams. things. And, and so to be able to share that perspective and story to a world that is really thirsty for that perspective uh, is going to be a wonderful thing, and I work hard every day to make sure we do that. I spoke at 70 elementaries last year, 70, and, and shared. That could be thousands and thousands and thousands of, of children people that now that know, will know this story. Sure, and see how we lived. And I take artifacts and just show them, you know, the, the wonderful sides of things that they really don't know much about. And I do love this story because it's an incredible story of a group of people that was kind of harmed by a group of people, but then allowed that group of people to bless them and bring them things in their life. And that's a kind of a paradox for me. Um, but I think it's sometimes we're can feel pain and be harmed as an individual group of people from the, an organization or that actually can in the totality of the organization, bless our lives the most. Sure. 
And that's part of the story here is I'm just thinking it through in my mind. And I do think of other, I think of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters that are in the church that sometimes have a harder road. And and as I've listened to some of those stories, they've been harmed at times. And there's been difficult things that have occurred. And some have stepped away, but some have been able to still feel relief and healing and part of the body of Christ. So that's, there's some similarities between, I don't want to, you know, hijack your story. <laughs> no, no, not For at all. No, not kind at all. of what's there's up, parallels, there. but there's just parallels. And I think I invite all of our listeners that may have felt pain in their lives from a trusted source, a family member, a friend, a spouse. There's all this pain that comes in our life. That's not disease or sin or, you know, that then you've got to figure out how am I going to solve this? Because it's not just as easy as repentance related pain, pain where you kind of go through the steps and we know that. So I think about this story and just invite all of our listeners to what principles is Darren taught here that, you know, can we use to overcome the own pain that comes into our lives? It's often from trusted sources, a family mm-hmm. member or a religious organization or an employer or places that should be safe for us that sometimes, and those times are the, those are sometimes the hardest that sure, to sort of are. resolve. Any last thoughts, Darren, before we sign off? I don't think so. I mean, and just keep in mind that and if you are in one of those groups or, or you feel you've been wronged, um, just do all you can to hang on and let us love you. And and you'll probably get wronged again. I mean, we live in a world that just... You'll probably get wronged again. Something bad's going to happen maybe one day, but just... Uh, do the best you can to to serve those around you and love everybody. That's our that's our charge. Uh, reach out a hand in friendship to everyone you meet, because everybody has a story worthy of being told. And what is your story going to be? Thank you, Darren, for joining us. I realized that you were my second companion. My first companion is an Englishman who's a member of Parliament, David Rutley. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll have him on the podcast. He's the most famous politician I know. He's not an American. He's British. He may have told you the same thing. He told me he was going to be a member of parliament when I first met him. He did say that. I remember. And I kind of took it with a grain of salt. I mean, he's 21 and he's my trainer. And after two months of, you know, working with him, I thought, yeah, you're going to be a member of parliament. And then I get shipped off to be your junior companion and... And look at what you're doing. And you're both, you know, serving in such wonderful ways. And it's just kind of, you know, ironic now that we're doing a podcast talking about that. So thank you, Darren Perry, my friend, my former companion, someone I look up to for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.